Welcome to episode two of the Axioms of Liberty podcast. And today's next article is an article that was actually suggested to me by somebody who is also as liberty and freedom minded and oriented as I am. And I actually kind of skimmed over the article and I think it's actually something really good. The title of the article is the Anti-Subjectivist Manifesto, The Case for Consent by Christian G. Moore and Patrick Smith. And I really think it's a really good article. I think it's got some valid points that need to be brought to bear for people to understand. And uh, I hope you guys all enjoy it. With that, let's get into the read. The Preface. It is not difficult to avoid death, gentlemen. It is much more difficult to avoid wickedness, for it runs faster than death. A quote from Socrates. The nature of this manifesto is to inform others, to profess some great insight, motivation, or cause in a manner that is both poignant and powerful. Our goal with this piece is to do just that. For an ethical theory known as anti-subjectivism, a theory that not only offers a normative framework for determining the rightness or wrongness of a given set of actions, but also a meta-ethical logic used to evaluate all ethical theories, and a growing breadth of creators and philosophers developing applied instances of the theory. The term anti-subjectivism is in modern philosophy holds deep connotations to the moral realist positions on the nature of ethical truths. This is not a position of the anti-subjectivism we here shall propose. Rather than the theory was constructed under the notion of ethical realism is an unfounded position, and as a result, none of our arguments will rely on a conception of any ethical truth woven into reality, nor power beyond our comprehension, which has created any such truths. Our goal is to not dupe, swindle, trick, or manipulate our way into any popular adoption of any of these ideas. Instead, we would like to present to you the arguments which have compelled us by the force of reason alone to construct this manifesto for you today. But before we dive into the discussion of anti-subjectivism directly, we feel it is important to lay out some basic statements about reality that may be useful to help contextualize this philosophy. Section 1. Establishing the Requirements for Functional Ethics We believe there to be three key aspects of the universe and our existence in it that must be directly addressed and agreed on before any ethical theory can even be built. Reality exists objectively. The three laws of logic are necessary foundation for any ethical theory. The default ethical environment of all living creatures is amoral. 1. Reality exists objectively. For the first claim, it is necessary for any system of normative ethics to accept, even if done so arbitrarily, that reality exists in any objective manner. There exists large swaths of claims in support to the contrary of this position. However, none of these claims bridge the inability for sopialistic or ideologically similar worldviews to facilitate any ethical theories. Our war response to any individual who would reject the assertion of 
objective reality is a simple one. There is no amount of argumentation, logic, reasoning, or civil conversation that could bridge the gap between the claims presented in this essay and the rejection of reality wholesale. If any reader exists as a solipsist and would like to participate in a consistent ethical theory with their imaginary companions, we encourage them to continue reading and perhaps live this theory out in their own world. However, this manifesto will prove highly lacking in contingency and explanatory power for any with a pre-existing perspective as such. Quote, reality is in which when you stop believing in it, it doesn't go away. End quote. Philip K. Dick. Number two. The three laws of logic are necessary foundation for any ethical theory. Regarding the second claim, without the ability to apply logic and rationalization in a consistent manner, there is no way to construct any ethical theory. Without the laws of identity, non-contradiction, and excluded middle reigning supreme, argumentation claims and truth have no meaning as these laws are necessarily axiomatic they must be adopted within a logical proof justifying them in themselves the law of identity a equals a for example does not exist because some other aspect of reality has allowed us to derive this concept and to view its authenticity outside of itself the law can only be verified by its lack of counterexample for the laws of logic what truths there are of reality can be derived because they are necessarily products of these laws. Any theory of any sort which either does not consider these laws or either intentionally or unintentionally violates one of the laws of logic cannot be seriously stated to have any substantive explanatory power or founded basis requiring its existence. Quote, to argue with a man who has renounced the use of and authority of reason is like administering medicine to the dead or endeavoring to convert an atheist by scripture. End quote. Thomas Paine. Three, the default ethical environment of all living creatures is in itself amoral. Finally, the third claim, the term state of nature exists as this amoral environment with a large historical context grounding in firmly in the minds of many philosophers. We will be dedicating a large section of this manifesto to properly outlining the state of nature as viewed by the anti-subjectivists. However, for those with prior knowledge on the topic, it can be tactically conflated with the Hobbesian conception. Still, it is important to note that they are not identical. Several key points of differentiation between the Hobbesian and anti-subjectivist interpretation of the state of nature include the expansion of the state of nature, to all living creatures in nature, the term nature being synonymous with the existing in reality, be it an ant, deer, or human, and the affirmation that no living being is born with any objective moral authority over any other living being, thereby evolving Hobbes' claims of there being no natural tyrants in a physical sense to a moral sense. Any ethical theory without a proper conception of the state of nature, which is appropriately addressed in, is omitting by their own volition, the most basal state of existence for any living creature which we can direct, observe, and evince. As the state of nature is the broader context from which any ethical theory ought to be in direct consideration when developing both its justification and claims, 
anti-subjectivism naturally places a large focus on this topic. There is no accurate descriptions of existence where the state of nature is omitted, and as such we believe it to be highly telling both of credibility and explanatory power of any ethical theory when it fails to address this massive elephant in the room, akin to designing a submarine with no mention of water. Section 2. Anti-Subjectivism Ethical philosophies all begin with, whether they realize it or not, the hypothetical imperative that people's goal is to live above the state of nature. The reality in which all the subjected to the force of might makes right, on the other hand. Science begins with the laws of logic derived from the consistency of the universe and disallows irrational or arbitrary selections in any given theory. Non-arbitrariness ensures that the results of such theories will not produce unforeseen conflict when applied in reality. If the logic of the theory is sound, it stands to reason it will produce the expected outcomes. For ethical theories that wish to accomplish their fundamental goal, the same is true. In order to ensure that any given ethical theory will continue to facilitate an individual's existence above the state of nature, we must subject philosophy to the same primacy of logic and absence of arbitrariness utilized by the sciences, thus preventing ourselves from developing theories that, when applied in reality, prescribe mutually exclusive or conflict-generating behaviors might-based. Arbitrary selections are, by definition, selections that made with no rational basis. Our ability to rationalize is our sole valid tool for making sense of the world. And a key product of this ability is our capacity to contrast sense data and propose concepts to identify contradictions. The ability to notice when what is being presented does not match with reality it is from the rules of logic that we know the contradictions cannot exist in reality and within the rules that we are able to identify them. A cannot both equal A and not A. Consequently, any contradiction with reality must be a problem with the concept and not with reality. To give an example, if Fred was to believe that the earth is flat and presented with the wealth of evidence that exists today... Demonstrating that the earth is spherical, it is neither the evidence nor the fact that the earth is spherical that is the contradiction, but Fred's conception of the flat earth itself. The relationship between arbitrary selections and their proclivity for contradictions is simple. An arbitrary selection is, by definition, unfounded, and thereby it does not require adherence to the laws of logic. As we've demonstrated, if a concept is in line with the laws of logic, it cannot be the source of any contradiction. But when arbitrariness is asserted, the risk for contradictions is undefinable because there is no metric by which to measure a claim made without rational justification. If we arbitrarily assert that 2 plus 2 equals 5, we are obviously wrong. But only if you were to scrutinize my claim utilizing the rules of mathematics, logical symbology, to do so, on the other hand, if you were to arbitrarily claim that the highest of all goods is the reduction of harm, the claim becomes much more difficult to casually dismiss. The claim is no less arbitrary than my poor mathematical assertion, but when couched in a sea of pseudo-rationalizations that ultimately are defined by subjective preference, the obviousness of the break with rationality is better hidden from those not looking closely. It is the link between arbitrariness 
and subjective preferences that facilitated the adoption of the name anti-subjectivism. If an act is deemed good or evil merely because one assertion that it is ips dixit, then you have made good and evil ethically meaningless terms. And in so doing, robbed very important concepts of any onus to be regarded seriously by those striving toward rationality. An arbitrary selection is subjective. The reason any person would make any given arbitrary choice is definitionally absent of any sort of objective justification. These claims are made because they feel right or seem like the correct course of action or might be close to the truth, but none of them are founded in any sense that a person striving to be a rational individual would be able to logically validate or to test for soundness. Not all arbitrary selections are something that ought to be avoided. Your favorite tie, Metallica album, favorite flavor of ice cream, sports team, are all for most people arbitrary selections. But it is not the objective of the anti-subjectivist to rob you of these personal pleasures. When the discussion turns to ethics, however, it is another matter entirely. Arbitrary selection in the context of ethics, either normative or applied, the process for determining what is good or evil and how to live these determinations in reality, have ramifications that extend past your preference of Tom Brady or Dak Prescott jersey. If an ethical theory makes an arbitrary selection to demand all able-bodied men fight a wild grizzly barehanded upon turning 18 or else considered bad, there are legitimate ramifications to such a prescription. Suddenly, without any approval from the individuals in question, in order to be considered good, they are required to participate in a mass mauling of the youth or else who would ever enforce that? We hear you ask anyone who arbitrarily chooses to do so. Throughout history, arbitrary ethical theories in the form of various superstitions, religions, and even scientific conclusions have been indoctrinated to the masses. Everything from Hitler's Ubersmutz to purify the human race to the child sacrifices of the Aztecs to bring the rain exist in the category and were adopted and forced en masse to terrible effect. The existence of an arbitrary element in an ethical theory necessarily introduces the opportunity for further arbitrariness, and this can result in detrimental consequences to those who expected to live under such circumstances. Quote, the uncontested absurdities of today are the accepted slogans of tomorrow. They can come to be accepted by degrees, by precedent, by implication, by erosion, by default, by dint of consent pressure on one side and con constant retreat on the other until the day when they are suddenly declared to be the country's official ideology. End quote. Ayn Rand. The chain of pseudo-rationalizations must start with an arbitrary selection. If there is no arbitrary rule demanding bouts with bears, there can be no false rationalization that someone ought to enforce that rule. We do not believe it to be hyperbolic in stating that unmitigated usage of arbitrariness is the ultimate downfall of the overwhelming majority of modern ethical theories, if not all of them. When arbitrariness is allowed to fester in places that have no and can never have rational justifications for their insertion, it is a catalyst for any number of adverse reactions, interpretations, and results. Make no mistake, anti-subjectivism as an ethical theory, is not a moral realist position. We do not advocate for you, 
believe in, or provide justification towards an objective moral truth. And because of this, we believe that even the act of following a moral theory is an arbitrary and thus subjective preference. This may come as a bit of shock considering how the beginning of this manifesto has spent the majority of its time lambasting the usage of arbitrariness. But recall the opening statement. Non-arbitrariness ensures that the results of such theories will not produce unforeseen conflict when applied in reality. There is a distinction between the fundamental premises any and all systems, be they philosophical or scientific, must initially accept that they can be built on the mechanics of the system itself. This presents the idea of foundational arbitrary selections, the necessary platforms that facilitate the development of all rational systems in mathematics, science, philosophy, or any other. Reality is real. The rules are logic are sound. Our existence ought to be elevated above the state of nature. These are all examples of foundational assumptions that any and every ethical theory must and do make in order to function in reality. To satisfy logical functions such as Hume's law, which prevent one from rationally deriving an ought from an is, is this accusation against anti-subjectivism is considered sufficient to defeat it. Then so too are all the other ethical theories defeated along with it. Ideas such as Hume's law are necessarily inescapable and thus unconquerable. Unlike other contemporary philosophies that are ignorant to, or worse, hand wave away these requirements, we choose to embrace them. This, however, does not necessitate or justify the free reign of arbitrariness in ethics. Any arbitrary statement is subjective after all, which means that any of them could be dismissed for any reason. Our goal is to take the arbitrary foundation that all ethics and even all sciences and rational debate must prop themselves up upon and add not a single additional arbitrary premise. The rules of logic and the existence of reality are typically upheld by most able-minded individuals you will meet on a day-to-day -day basis, even if they do not always act in a manner that suggests so. No one bound to reason and evidence expects or believes that their wallet may magically transform into any some sort of other object or exists superimposed as both a Ferrari and a wallet at the same time. They know that these things do not and cannot happen. It is the desire to elevate oneself above the state of nature that is perhaps the least obviously accepted notion and as such deserves more of our attention today. First, a brief explanation of the state of nature, quo ethics. The state of nature exists as most basal, basal, and only objective layer of reality. You might have colloquially referred to it as the animal kingdom, the rule of the wild, or the law of the jungle. These all essentially encompass the same idea. Might makes right, and nothing else. This is the default existence of all living creatures on earth, deers, ants, panthers, vipers, and even mankind. All are born into this reality and it alone. The moral evaluation of the state of nature is null as there is no evidence to support any prevailing moral truths or conceptions that any decision must be made in accordance with. So it is best described as an amoral existence. Because of this state of nature, as you can imagine, is a grueling one. There is no popular conception of right or wrong. There is no dentological limitations on one's individual actions. 
There is no preference towards one who would wish to act in line with their own sensibilities. There is only survival and death. In the state of nature, there are no rights. Humanity as a species has spent the last 6,000 years or more attempting to separate itself from the state of nature because of these facts of existence, hindered all along the way by arbitrarily asserted higher moral authorities of one manner or another, from gods to kings to cults and collectivizations. The state of nature and the sociopaths who have worked to hold people in it are in the banes of peaceful, successful coexistence at large. The temptations and capacity for an individual to return to this moral knoll are always a single decision away, and more temporary disregard of the primacy of the moral concepts they hold. Earlier, we briefly touched on the idea of the desire to elevate oneself above the state of nature being an arbitrary selection. It is a subjective choice to choose to limit one's actions, whether by whim or to uphold one's preferred ethical theory. This fact helps explain the seemingly unending prevalence of bad actors in society at large. We can all think of someone who acts with disregard towards any ethical theory or a person's selected adherence towards another. The doorstep package thief, the con man, the murderer, the rapist, all of which have a singular trait in common. They individually make the choice to step back into the realm of the state of nature, the realm of might makes right, the realm of absent ethical concepts and considerations to achieve some personal goal. Others be damned. In the future, you may hear a reference to a state of nature being... These are those beings, the ones who, for their own expedience or pleasure alone, decide to eschew from the conventions of otherwise polite society and return to the realm of the beasts. One more key fact about the state of our nature that is, is of value to our discussion is the concept of the lack of inherent moral authority in any individual. To rephrase this, there are no natural-born leaders, kings, or tyrants in the state of nature. No one by who, by natural or supernatural process, holds an inherent moral authority over others. All creatures have a moral authority over no, no more, no less. And the exact same thing is true of any other creature. For thousands of years of monarchs and divine rulers, the burden of proof in this regard has been unfairly shifted onto their subjects. However, this rationally cannot be the case. A lack of individual moral superiority is merely a matter of absence of evidence to the contrary, but it holds massive ramifications for ethical theories in their construction of society. For all of this, we are presented with the first true question of anti-subjectivism. How do we elevate ourselves above the state of nature without introducing further arbitrariness? Thankfully, on this occasion, reality has provided us with enough facts to discern exactly what it is we are trying to avoid. The might makes right reality state of nature. So the first step is to identify what it is about this existence we are trying to escape from. There are many preferential answers that can help to frame the idea. I want to be able to feel safe in my town. I don't want things to be taken from me. I would like to avoid being swindled. And many more ideas such as this. But all of them have a single connecting thread, some sort of violation of personal autonomy and or property. This is what might makes right. The acts that are justified merely by the power to commit them. Acting on other people and their property without their consent. What most distinctly separates the state of nature and existence above it is the conception of the self, mine, 
that which is rightly yours or part of your existence and your right to maintain those aspects until you choose to part with them. In the state of nature, no such idea exists. It cannot exist in a world where you are but a clubbing away from losing your own life, where no system exists by which to dissuade anyone from doing so. But the sake of logical rigor, let's approach this from another angle. If it is the rule of the state of nature for might to make right, it is logical to assume that the negation of the state of nature would be the negation of this idea. Might does not make right. The question then becomes, what does this negation mean in practice? If before it was permissible to take your neighbor's coconuts by force to quench your thirst merely because you were strong enough to do so, in the negation it is no longer permissible to do so. The opposite of taking by force is trading consensually, taking without force. Consent is the negation of force, the negation of the state of nature. The state of nature cannot coexist with consent. Giving the options of violent and consensual actions towards the coconut owner and their property, only the latter choice would be permissible under this context. We can condense the, this negation and all of its ideas into a more operable phrase. The initiation of force is not permissible. Or to put it yet another way, all ethical interactions must be consensual. This is the normative ethical claim of anti-subjectivism ethics. Consent is defined here as one agreement or permission for something to happen to be done to their person and or property. This idea is universalizable, which is a key component of its function inside a non-arbitrary framework of morally equal individuals. All of it individuals at all times in all places must be engaged with consensually unless that individual had returned to the state of nature by failing to reciprocate the primacy of consent. This is because the only way someone could act on others in violation of consent to act violently while still demanding that others continue to observe and respect their own consent would be if they base that demand on a claim that they somehow possess a greater moral authority. A claim that we've already established cannot and has never been substantiated. A violent person has no rational defense to others not treating them likewise. Consent is universalizable because it is impossible for it to be otherwise. And as such, if one wishes to remain above the state of nature, they must engage in the consent reciprocally. On top of this, there are no additional claims that can be extracted from the state of nature as it is defined by the singular might makes right attribute, and as such, consent is the only normative claim of the theory. There is nowhere else to build additional rules that other individuals ought to conform to so that they may live above the state of nature without further arbitrary selection. Consent is king. And that is the end of the road. What? You, we hear you cry. There's plenty of theories that take consent into account. We're inclined to agree to an extent. There are a number of theories that to some degree facilitate consensual interactions between individuals, but not without further arbitrary claims that allow for consent to be violated. Let's take, for example, act utilitarianism. Not because this theory is widely prevalent or accepted, but because its simple formulation allows us to dissect this observation more clearly. Under act utilitarianism, the fundamental principle is to minimize harm towards the maximal number of individuals. On the day-to-day -day under this rule, you could engage in several consensual 
interactions, a casual conversation with your neighbor, trading some fruit from your garden for fresh cut beef. However, this rule facilitates an unfathomably large number of non-consensual actions as well. And this is the primary distinction between anti-subjectivism and the rest of ethics. For anti-subjectivism, consent is the rule. For the other theories, consent is merely a temporary phenomenon facilitated by other arbitrary rules. Consent is the most antithetical concept to the state of nature imaginable. As we have already beaten the horse to death regarding the intricacies of the state of nature, we'll skip the lengthy triad one could derive simply from this relation and instead move towards the implications of this, this idea. If consent as the negation of the state of nature is the path by which we elevate ourselves above it, we have presented a whole swath of applied ethical necessities into our day-to-day -day interactions with others, and the work on the applied ethics is already vast. But there is one key advantage to the focus on consent that we believe is too often overlooked in this conversation. Flexibility. Under the anti-subjectivist theory, your capacity to live your life with others is limited only by your capacity to maintain consensual relations. This means your arbitrarily preferred society is merely an agreement away. If you would like to live in a community much like that which you live in today, where the town pays for garbage service, has regularly patrols of security, a.k.a. police, a designated body that organizes the infrastructure and education, all of this is a few handshakes away. If you would like to live in a commune, pulling the resources of your community's labor and dividing them equally across members in order to achieve total equi equilibrium, as long as all the individual individuals involved continue to provide their consent, it too is a few handshakes away. We will state it again. Whatever society you would like to live in, anti-subjectivism is limited only by your capacity to find others who wish to join you and leave those who don't, who do not or no longer consent completely out of it. As we begin to close, we find it important to note that this is not some utopian idea to end all the woes of mankind on earth. There will be state of nature beings who violate others' consent. There will still be those with less and those with more. There will still be pain, suffering, misery, and strife. Some aspects of reality we cannot simply wave away the ideas and words of typed on a keyboard. However, unlike the rest of the aesthetics we can provide you, you will have true autonomy that you can utilize and rightly defend from those who would wish to take it from you. Many will critique anti-subjectivism as regressive, a notion that we won't even stress into missing. If the claim is that anti-subjectivism could lead society away from the arbitrary rules, guides, or standards that result in the daily violations of personal consent we see today, then it is certainly regressive, and regressive in the best way possible. Regressive in the same way that we've already regressed from slavery, child sacrifice, and the ideas of the Uber month. Section 3 answering the call of consent. We will end with a call to action, if you will. Even if you are unconvinced with the claims provided in this manifesto, the next time you are engaged in thought or conversation over ethics, play a game of spot the arbitrariness. There are numbers of understandable and empathetic reasons one might be opposed to connotations or applied ethics of anti-subjectivist theory. But it is up to each of us to determine what is important. Consent is something that the vast majority already claim to value both in word and in action. It is up to whether to you to choose to run that line of thought to its logical conclusion or to reject reason by arbitrary justification toward arbitrary ends. Regardless of your decision, 
We will continue to respect the consent of all the people we meet and interact with and reciprocate such respect towards ours. Our only hope is that you will join us and help us build a community of like-minded individuals above the state of nature as individuals connected by common cause, consensually, of course. For more information, visit antisubjectivism.com. And that ends the Anti-Subjectivist Manifesto. Uh, what do you guys think? I thought that it definitely took the right approach of laying out the argument, giving its basis for why consent matters. And I like how it talked about how they or they as in the other philosophies of uh, let's say natural law and such that it kind of took it took it took these ideas and it built upon them and actually made it a step further because the biggest takeaway from this article that I understood is that consent was the rule that allows us to rise above the state of nature and that when we choose to ignore consent, then we are choosing to re to return to the state of nature and therefore no longer allowed to be, you know, among quote unquote civilized society. And uh, I thought that was really a really key point of the whole idea of that consent is inherent to the idea of man itself that without consent we have nothing and i feel like that's such a key point for so many people to understand is that you yourself are the only one in your body you are your persons you are your property you have the right to that property and that the consent is required between you and other individuals in order to make that be real and that that consent needs to be the basis and the foundation of your just the whole idea of life itself because if we don't have consent if consent doesn't exist which we all obviously know that it does because i mean this is why you're here now this is why you're listening to this podcast is that you are consenting to listening to me talk about this nonsense stuff that you know most people think is crazy but you know i think this kind of stuff's important this is why i created this podcast this is why i want to flesh out these ideas this is why i want to learn more about this stuff because i want to further deepen my knowledge but at the same time i want to give this a, a, a voice a place for people to have an avenue to want to go to listen to these ideas and have them talked about and maybe you know question their own idea of reality of what they thought they knew about the world but anyway but I, I like that idea that the consent has to be there in order for the world to exist in life period and I also like that they laid down the foundation of that the state of nature you know the the, the, the law of the jungle it's amoral there's no good or bad Within And I think that kind of goes against natural law itself because natural law kind of builds its foundation and theory upon the idea of that there's moral actions and immoral actions and that 
we as men have the ability to reason what is good and what is bad, but that is inherent to the idea that we have the consent because the only reason why we are able to con- to reason that something was either good or bad is because there needed to be consent prior in order for that foundational reasoning to exist. And I feel like that's such a key point to understand that's just, just that little little nugget there. But uh, if you guys like this article, if you guys think it was good, let me know what you guys think about it. Um, but uh, um, you guys can reach out to me at Twitter at Axioms of Liberty. Um, it's a new account, so I don't really have a whole lot of followers. If you guys could give it a follow and help retweet and share, that would be greatly appreciated. I would appreciate any kind of feedback you guys have. Uh, if you guys have any articles, if you guys have something that you feel is relevant to the freedom, sovereignty, individuality movement, like feel free, send me a DM because my account is kind of like locked. I guess I can't send DMs to people because I won't verify my phone number. Fuck you, Elon, whatever. But that's besides the point. But yeah, please get in touch with me. You guys can send me emails if you guys don't want to get a hold of me on Twitter with at axiomsofliberty.proton.me. Um, that's another way you guys can uh, get a hold of me. But uh, just had some time today to knock this one out, a little short episode. I know the first one was a really long one, two hours long. I, if you guys listen to it, I thank you. Um, but I just feel like Spooner did a really good job at destroying the Constitution and its legitimacy. And too many people lean upon that as a crutch as to why we have rights. And that's fundamentally incorrect is that we have rights regardless of that piece of paper. That was us just declaring our rights and declaring that any entity known as government shall not violate these rights because these rights are ours from the get-go. But uh, anyways, thanks guys for listening. Uh, and I'll catch you guys on the next one. <laughs>